0: Uh, wow, okay, so it's almost half six, sorry I'm late, Uh, had a bit of a nap, it's just been a really long day. Um, Yeah, hello and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. Uh, We're looking at four new passages today, the 1st of February, oh, feels like a fresh start, Uh, first day of a new month, it's a Monday, Um, yeah, okay, let's see what we're looking at and the Robert Murray McShane Bible study plan. Um, Genesis chapter 33, Mark chapter four, Esther chapters nine and ten, so I guess we're finishing that book, and Romans chapter four. Okay. Um, yeah, looking ahead at the week, um, I've got a few talks coming up. you okay, I've got three. Uh, possibly more, uh, which I haven't prepared for yet. Uh, The first one is this coming Saturday. Uh, It's with students at the Chinese Fellowship here in Cambridge, CCCF. What's that? Cambridge Chinese Christian Fellowship. Let's see, Um, CCCF, there you go. Okay, there they are. Um, Need to repair in that. I think, am I leading like a Bible study or something? yeah um well yeah there they are uh cambridge chinese christian fellowship so speaking to them this coming weekend um then on monday i'm doing like a chinese new year thing uh with an international cafe and then the following wednesday um doing a bible study i think Romans 6 or something yeah so, yep, so this is the one that's coming up. I know that I'm supposed to do something on one John. might be chapter two or chapter three. um yeah, okay, so um yeah i um, I used to be be like these guys, <laughs> these students. uh used to be one of them, a really good group of students. uh, this is an old photo. My goodness, these guys graduated a long time ago. Oh wow okay uh it'll be good to talk to them again I think the last time I gave a talk at this student group was possibly a five year old wow these guys have really been um they really graduated a long time ago amazing okay let's just see what's new with them uh okay about the CCF is an interdenominational fellowship for evangelical believers um uh, to proclaim the gospel of Christ primarily to students of Chinese origin in and around Cambridge. Um, yeah, there's a statement of faith. Uh, their theme. Okay, or this, this will be useful. I think I'm supposed to speak on this theme. Love thy neighbor. And this is from 1 John chapter 4. Uh, we love because he, God, first loved us. So God loved us and therefore... Um, if we claim to love God but hate our brother or sister, whoever says that he's a liar, whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they've not seen cannot love God, whom they've not seen that's there's a good piece of logic there, um, just consistency and um, loving one another and just being therefore being consistent, therefore in loving one another with the love of christ okay i guess i should prepare this then at some point of time uh what i'm going to do if i can kind of squeeze it and maybe i'll look at a bit of one john over this week uh just to get an overview uh maybe i'll plan out that talk um and share whatever thoughts illustrations i have with you and let's see let's journey together and see how that talk takes shape and um before i deliver it on this coming saturday okay We've done a lot of stuff. Wow, interesting. Yeah, um, don't know if anyone who watches this This is from the Chinese Fellowship. Looking forward to being with you this Saturday. Um, uh, Speaking on 1 John something something. (laughs) Uh, Okay, all right, there you go. Um, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the CCCF. Thank you so much for their witness here in Cambridge and thank you so much for their desire to love one another with the love of Christ. Pray for this upcoming meeting and this Bible study uh, that you'll encourage us to love one another. Please help us to see how it is your love that enables us to do this. Help us to see that it's first you who loved us. And help us, Lord, to think of ways that we can practically lift this out, this command to love one another. Help me with the preparation. Help me to understand your word and to be able to speak in a way that is not only clear but it really, just helps us helps us to see how wonderful it is. You know, this command and this call, um, just to be sacrificial and to be loving, and to be considerate with one another, with this amazing love you've given us in Christ. Uh, for tonight, help me to understand um, the passages we'll be looking at together. These four different passages um, help us all, whoever is watching this, uh, as well um, to you know to be meditative to be considerate in a way that how we can obey these words, for they come from you as our God, as our Father in heaven. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, uh, someone, uh, well, a few people have told me this already. A few people are watching this uh, as a recording in the morning, especially people in Malaysia. So Selamat pagi, if you're watching in the Malaysia and probably having like breakfast, can you imagine what you're having, like teh tarik? And as you while you're enjoying that, thank you for uh, watching this, listening to this as well. Um, let me know, let me know uh, if this is helpful, if there is anything that I can do to encourage you in your reading of the Bible. And um, thanks, thanks, especially to a few people who've uh, just dropped me a message saying that that's what you're doing. Uh, it encourages me because, uh, you know, uh, being able to share this experience with one another is what makes it uh, more than just... Um, um, a personal thing, you know, um, even this that struggle of going through all these seven passages, or being able to reflect it with one another, I think just makes you conscious um, that this is God's word to not just an individual, but to Christians generally, and yeah, it's, it's helpful for me, and it's encouraging to me, so thanks, thanks for those messages. Okay, so on to our first reading, Genesis chapter 33, so this is Jacob's story. Uh, Genesis 33 Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold Esau was coming and with him 400 men (laughs) he divided the children between Leah, Rachel and their two servants he put the servants and their children in front Leah and her children after and Rachel and Joseph at the rear he himself interesting that he mentions Joseph specifically I guess because at this point in time Rachel had just this one son before she had Benjamin later. Okay, verse 3, he himself passed over in front of them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now that's really interesting. So initially, you know, he has this contingent in front of him. So here it just mentions his family, his two wives and his children. But if you remember yesterday, he sends waves and waves of servants and gifts ahead of him. But now what happens is he goes in front. You know, he passes over in front of all of them. And I think that has something to do with the encounter they had with God uh, just before this. He saw God face to face. And I think that emboldened him, that encouraged him, that um, as he prayed to God for protection, I think he is uh, confident and trusting that God will give him that protection and answer that prayer. Verse 4, Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck, kissed him and they wept. He lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, "Who are these with you? He said, "The children whom God graciously given your servant, whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants came near with their children and they bowed themselves. Leah also and her children came near and bowed themselves, and after them, Joseph came near with Rachel and they bowed themselves. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? Jacob said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Let that which which you have be yours. Jacob said, Please, no, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present at my hand because I have seen your face as one sees the face of God, and you were pleased with me please take the gift that i brought to you because god has dealt graciously with me and because i have enough he urged him and he took it esau said let's take our journey and let's go and i'll go before you jacob said to him my lord knows that the children are tender and that the flocks and herds with me have their young and if they overdrive them one day all the flocks will die please let my lord pass over before his servant and I will lead on gently according to the pace of the livestock that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I came to come to my Lord to Sire. Uh, Esau said, Let me now leave with you uh, some of the people who are with me. He said, Why? Let me find favour in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sire. Jacob travelled to Sukkoth, built himself a house, and there and made shelters for his livestock therefore the name of that place is called sukkoth and here's a footnote sukkoth means shelters or booths jacob came in peace to the city of shechem which is in the land of canaan when he came from padanaram and encamped before the city he brought the parcel of ground where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of hamor shechem's father for 100 pieces of money he erected an altar there and called it Elohi Israel, which means God, God of Israel. God, the God of Israel is mighty. Okay. Um, So he reconciles with his brother, um, whom he hasn't seen for 20 years. Wow. At the point when he left, uh, he had swindled his brother uh, twice of his birthright, and his brother was so angry. He said that the moment his dad died, uh, he would kill him. So he left twenty years ago and now he's come back worried that his brother would, you know, finally finish that deed. <laughs> and initially, you know, he almost has cause for worry. You know, Esau comes in verse one with four hundred men. That's why they reported him yesterday as well. So he wondered, you know, he's coming here to cause trouble. But actually what happens in verse four is Esau he runs up to him and it's this emotional kind of like Reunion with his brother, embraced him, fell on his neck, kissed him, wept. Um, yeah, obviously, you know, things worked out much, much better than he'd hoped. You know, Esau really was happy to see him. Um, and, you know, he, uh, he initially doesn't want any of the gifts. You say, what's these? You know, it, it's for you as a present to find favor in your sight, verse 8. And he said, Esau said, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm doing pretty well myself. You know, he has 400 men. Uh, but Jacob said, no, please, these, this is yours to find favor in your sight. And then he says something really interesting. Uh, please know if I found favor in your sight, then receive my present. Because, he says, I've seen your face as one sees the face of God. And you were pleased with me. So he makes a connection. Um, comparing seeing Esau's face with seeing the face of God and this chapter is full of the expression um, that face you know uh, whenever it says that he sent people ahead of him he actually sent people before his face and um, and there are expressions like covering his face or lifting up his face you know uh, and you get that in the original language and it all has to do with God's face being seen by um, Jacob, is seeing God's favor and being able to meet God face to face, and therefore he compares that unexpected huge blessing that encounter, therefore with being able to see Esau. And I guess it's worth pondering that connection because, you know, initially it's fearful. You know, you wonder if God will accept you. You know, that that's something uh, worth thinking about. You know, God is holy; we are not. know God is so different from us and if you had an encounter with someone who is so powerful who made you who gave you all these promises before and then you kind of like turn your back on him really what you're wanting is for God to be gracious to be you know loving towards you and to forgive you and I think it's that sense that he connects that encounter with God with the connection with, with then with Esau. You know, he's seeking his forgiveness, in other words. And Esau does forgive him. And that's why he says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God and that you were pleased with me. Yeah. Um, last week, I, uh, yeah, I was doing that cover of that song, you know, the blessing, the Lord turn his face upon you and, make, and shine upon you. Um, and that, that's that idea again, not that God turns his face away but that God looks upon you and that's a sign of his blessing. And so that's what's happening here. So there's reconciliation. There's that blessing that comes. I think it comes because of God and he makes that, connects those dots. So because God has dealt graciously with me, he says in verse 11, and I have enough. So he's being generous and gracious. And then as they part, then this is where the signals kind of get mixed because you wonder, hey, wasn't it good when they met together, and then Esau says, um, "Okay, I'll accompany you back." And then Jacob seems hesitant, and Jacob, I think, almost lies to him, because Esau says, "You know, I'll see you in Saire." You know, he wants to leave him bodyguards, and Jacob says, "No, no, it's fine. I'll I'll take care of them myself." You know, all the children, all the livestock. You know, they can't move as fast as you and your four hundred men. So you know, um, I'll stay back with them. But then he he moves into this other city in Shechem. You know, he, he goes to Sukkoth built inside a house there and the sukkoth means uh, tent or booth uh, and then after that he moves to this place called Shechem. So he actually doesn't go to this place that his brother expects him to go although he says that he was going there and you kind of wonder whether, you know, whether he then loses faith that Esau will maintain this figure towards him. We don't know. I don't know uh, if that's significant. But even Esau leaving all these men with him, you know, Esau kind of, like, smells something, you know. So, yeah, that's how it ends so far. Um, But so far, you know, uh, the big picture of him reconciling with his brother, um, I think it's only possible because he's reconciled himself with God. And it's worth thinking, you know, is there someone that it's just so hard to get along with, especially if you've done them wrong and you've done everything you can to avoid them. and It's been 20 years and, you know you just dread that encounter and maybe what might help is realizing that a lot of that angst and the fearfulness is really a byproduct of your fear of coming face to face with God and just realizing that you know God is much much more gracious than you are fearful that God actually wants to have this relationship with you I think that transforms uh, all our other relationships removes all that fear the apprehension And why not do what Jacob did, pray to God, ask for his mercy first, you know, meet with him first, and then let him transform your other relationships. Cool. Mark chapter 4. Again, he, Jesus, began to teach by the seaside. A great multitude was gathered to him so that he entered into a boat in the sea and sat down. All the multitude were on the land by the sea. He taught them many things in parables, and told them in his teaching, Listen, behold, the farmer went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the road, and the birds came and devoured it. Others fell on a rocky ground, where it had little soil. immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of soil. When the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Others fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. Others fell in good ground and yielded fruit, growing up and increasing. Some produced thirty times, some sixty times, and some one hundred times as much. He said, Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, those who were around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. He said to them, To you is given the mystery of God's kingdom. But to those who are outside, all things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest perhaps they should turn again, and their sins should ha- should be forgiven them. He said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How will you understand all of the parables? The farmer sows the word. The ones by the road are the ones where the word is sown, and when they have heard, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word, which has been sown in them. These in the same way are those who are sown on the rocky places, who when they've heard a word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but are short-lived. When oppression or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they stumble. Others are those who are sown among the Thorns. These are those who have heard the word and the cares of this age and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in to choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Those which were sown on the good ground are those who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit some 30 times, some 60 times, and some 100 times. He said to them, Is the lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? isn't it put on a stand? For there is nothing hidden except it should be made known. Neither was anything made secret but that it should come to light. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. He said to them, Take heed what you hear. With whatever measure you measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given to you who hear. For whoever has to him more will be given, and he who doesn't, have, even that which he has will be taken away from him. He said, God's kingdom is as if a man should cast seed on the earth, and should sleep, and rise night and day, and the seed should spring up and grow, though he doesn't know how. For the earth bears fruit by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the fruit is ripe, immediately he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. He said, How will we liken God's kingdom, or with what parable will be, will be illustrated? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which, when it is sown in the earth, though it is less than all the seeds that are on the earth, yet when it is sown, grows up, becomes greater than all the herbs, and puts out great branches, so that the birds of the sky can lodge under its shadow. With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it without a parable he didn't speak to them but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. On that day when evening had come he said to them let's go over to the other side leaving the multitude they took with them even as he was in the boat other small boats who were also with him a big wind storm arose And the waves beat into the boat so much that the boat was already filled. He himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and told him, Teacher, don't you care that we are dying? He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the wind, Peace, be still. The wind ceased and there was great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? How is it that you have... No faith. They were greatly afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and no sea obey him? So, this is chapter four of Mark's gospel. It's a large teaching block. Jesus teaches parable after parable after parable. And it's unique because this is the first time we meet Jesus actually giving this whole chunk of teaching. And we find two such chunks in Mark's gospel. So Mark's gospel, imagine 16 chapters. And right in the middle is Peter confessing Jesus Christ. And it splits the gospel into two. The first part is, who is this guy? You know, who is this? That's the the question you have at the end. Who is this person? Who is just Jesus? And that's the first question. The second half has to do is, what has he come to do? Uh, And the first answer is, he's the Christ, who is he? And the second answer is he's come to die on the cross so the first part has to do with him being the Christ and hence it builds up to him being confessed by Peter as the Christ the second half has to do with him going to the cross that journey to bring salvation to all mankind by taking all our sins upon himself and so he keeps telling him the son of man must be delivered up he must die he must rise again so what we have here in the middle is chapter 4 and the middle of that second section is chapter 12 and both are teaching blocks and so it's very intentional it's very laid out very structurally well so 16 chapters chapter 8 in the middle chapter 4 and chapter 12 in between those two sections so here we have him teaching parable of the ta- parable he's by the seaside and you can imagine all the crowds coming to him in the seaside you know like a huge auditorium you know when you look out um, onto the crowds, maybe like a stadium and then there's the sea (laughs) where the stage is or where like a stadium where the pitch is and what Jesus does he gets in a boat and he pushes out into the sea into this lake the sea of Galilee and then he's able to speak to all the crowd and there's this like auditorium effect so it's a huge group of people and he teaches them in parables and only in parables And that's the thing. One of the questions is, why? (laughs) Why doesn't he just tell them straight? And apparently each parable, let's just define it. It's not just a story. It's not just a Sunday school story. But it's a story with a twist, a story with a hidden meaning that is intentionally hidden to the crowd. And we know that because when he is private amongst his own friends, amongst the disciples, he tells them the meaning of those parables. So, um... Let's, let's look at one of them. Well, this is the longest one, the parable of the sower, you know, this farmer, this who goes out to sow. Sow means just planting seed. And so there are four different types of soil. And the thing to notice here is that most of the soil do not receive the word. Most of the soil rejects the word. And this is symbolic of most of the people who hear Jesus' teaching reject it so there's three types of soils the first soil you know birds of the air came and ate it and that's and he explains it as that is um satan coming the second one is on rocky places and rocky places is it's kind of like um there's a layer of lime limestone underneath and that's the rocky places and uh so uh so the soil is actually very thin the 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 seed goes into the ground and so it's heated up by the sun and so it grows out really quickly but then because there's a layer of limestone limestone rock underneath the root can't take root and so it dies so it's short-lived it's talking about those spurious reactions that actually doesn't last it receives it with joy first but then it's short-lived when oppression or persecution comes they stumble and then those that are sown among thorns you know it's it grows and then the thorns kind of like choke the new plant and that choking is described as the cares of this age the deceitfulness of riches lusts for other things there are other things that compete for your desires for your attention and then it becomes unfruitful and the last soil produces a lot a lot of fruit. so um, know 30 times 60 times 100 times so it's talking about those uh, people who receive the gospel and tell the gospel to others and so it bears fruit other people hear about Jesus through this person who first heard about Jesus and that's great except it is still only one of the four soils and you know it happens over time it doesn't happen immediately and what, if you pull it together, what it explains therefore is how Jesus has been received so far. And that's what he's doing throughout all these parables. That's, that's the theme running through all of them. You find that most of them characterize and explain the rejection he's had so far. And we've seen, seen that in the last few chapters, you know, how the Pharisees, the religious teachers, even his own family call him crazy and want to, you know, reject him. Uh, but he says, you know, know that's he expects it. It's it's almost a symbolic. And that's why he says, um, he, he explains that, you know, to you is given the mystery of God's kingdom to just the twelve, but to those on the outside, the crowds who are coming to him. You know, there's he speaks it in parables so that, and he quotes Isaiah chapter six, six chapter six, enam in Bale, uh seeing they may not see uh, seeing they may see and not perceive Hearing they may hear and not understand, lest perhaps they should turn again and their sins should be forgiving them. It's saying that the more I preach, the more they won't accept it. And that was Isaiah's uh, ministry in chapter 6. It was quite a shock. Isaiah is being sent by God to speak his word. And the more that they hear this word, the more they will turn their hearts away from God because of this word. Seeing You know, they may see something, but they won't understand. Hearing, they may hear something, but they won't get it. Because if they did, God would forgive them their sins. And so be careful of these parables. Because on one hand, you might love it, you know, wow, wonderful children's stories. You know, it's all these different seas and and all these very good illustrations. But Jesus himself knows that some people will only receive things on the surface. And it's therefore serving as a filtering mechanism to filter out those who just want a little bit of gospel, a little bit. It's kind of an inoculation, such that get a little bit of the gospel and then they will reject it wholeheartedly in the end. Um, But let's see, but for his disciples at least, you know, the secrets, the mystery of the kingdom of God is revealed to them. So let's look at the rest. Yep, so it's a lamp put under a basket, under a bed. It's, nothing is hidden except it should be made known. Nothing should be made secret. And then he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And therefore, he's saying, you know, um, this gospel, you know, it's meant um, if you do get it, if you do receive it, don't hide it Don't put it away and that's one of the ways that you know that you have got it you know, if, if you claim that you go, aha, uh-huh, yes, I understand that sermon." you know, this passage and you just keep it inside of you maybe you don't understand it as much as you think um, and yeah, therefore that's, that's just too much, too much and the idea is again, so this guy, he plants it and then he just grows on his own I, I, like, this, I like, like this kind of illustration it's actually very reassuring if you're someone who's involved in gospel ministry, you know, a man casts seed on the earth and then he goes to bed, <laughs> you know, because whether the seed grows or not, it's not up to you, you know. And then he describes it as a process as well, you know, first the blade, then the ear and then the full grain. It's like, you know, it take time lapse, you know, you see one of those David Attenborough documentary, slow motion time lapse of a plant that's growing and it grows, woo, you know, the leaf and it grows into flower and it grows into a plant. You know, that takes a long time. And actually, you can't control that growth. And so Jesus is saying, you know, this growth of this kingdom, right now it's slow. You know, no one accepts and it, it's all being rejected. But eventually it will grow. And, it, and it's not up to you. And I guess that's comforting for anyone involved in ministry because growth is always God's domain. All you can do is just plant the seed, just keep planting, keep planting. And a lot of times it might not grow at all. But if it does, it's not you. If it doesn't, it's still not you. Okay, all right. Uh, Let's see. Um, Yep, that's also the mustard seed, small seed, big result. And again, that's only going to happen at the end, at the fullness of the kingdom. And yeah, so again, the principle of slow start. But at the end, at the end, it will grow. You know, the last soil will produce a crop of 30, 60, 100. But that only happens at the end. So then we come to the second section with the disciples. So remember, the disciples have been receiving this insider knowledge. You know, everyone else, they get the parables, They get the outer surface kind of like filtering stories. But they get the fullness. They see everything about Jesus. And so you think the disciples, they will be the first to see Jesus as he is. But Mark's Gospel will go on to show that actually these very close friends of Jesus who see him have full access to him are the ones who misunderstand him the most and we see here in this first instance in this boat I think there are going to be three events in a boat and this is the first of them uh, so he um, he goes in a boat and then suddenly there's this storm and then the water starts going into the boat but Jesus is sleeping he's sleeping on the cushion and then they wake him up. Te- teacher, you know, we're dying. Don't you love us? Don't you care about us? Why are you sleeping? And Jesus gets up, you know, maybe a little cranky. Uh, and then he scolds the wind. You no, know, quiet now. Be, please be still. And then it gets still. That- that's pretty incredible. You almost have to imagine it just to get the effect. You know, raging storm, thunder and lightning and darkness and water coming to the boat. And everyone's going, ah. And then Peter- Jesus goes, Oi. <laughs> Quiet. And then suddenly, psh, all, all gone. No more rain. Stillness. Clouds clear up. And then they're fearful. And then he said to them, Why are you so afraid? How is it that you have no no faith? So firstly, they're afraid of dying. But now they were greatly afraid. They're greatly afraid of Jesus. So that's there's fear here. There's even greater fear now of Jesus. Who is this guy that even the wind... And the sea obey him. Now, yes, there is a positive aspect where they go, Oh, whoa, check out this guy, you know, who who is he? And they start asking maybe the right questions. Maybe he's more than just a teacher. But at the same time, they will fear Jesus a lot. And this fearfulness is in contrast to faith. Jesus says, How is it that you have no faith? They actually don't trust him. And one of the signs that you don't actually trust God, you don't actually trust Jesus is that you're constantly afraid of the situation you're in but you're also afraid that god won't won't help you and it's you, you uh it's one thing to doubt god if you don't you know if you don't know him and you know you're still investigating and so you're you're trying to clear your doubts trying to find out more but there's another kind of doubt whereby you just doubt that god will ever be there for you and you don't actually really know Jesus, you don't actually really know God, and more than that, you don't even trust Him. And therefore, you've never actually taken that step whereby you say to God, You know, my life is in your hands, and I know that you are in control of everything. And it's until you cross that step um, that, you know, until you do that, you know, you'll always be in this constant state of fear and doubt and apprehension of the person whom you have the closest connection to, these, these disciples, compared to everyone else. They have the connection with Jesus. They have access to him. But still, that just causes them to fear him all the more. So again, completes that picture that Jesus actually misunderstood, rejected, sidelined by everyone, especially his closest friends and his family, those who know him. So that's the picture we see of Mark's gospel so far. Cool. Let's move on. Esther chapter 9. And 10. Oh, okay. All right. So we're finishing the book. Yeah. Yeah. Now in the 12th month, which is the month Adar, on the 13th day of the month, when the king's commandment and his decree came near to be put in execution, on the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to conquer them, but it turned out that the opposite happened, that the Jews conquered those who hated them, the Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who wanted to harm them. No one could withstand them because the fear of them had fallen on all the people. All the princes of the provinces, uh, the local governors, the governors, and those who did the king's business helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew greater and greater the Jews struck all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and with slaughter and destruction and did what they wanted to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed. Five hundred men they killed. Parshandatha, Dalphon Aspatha, Porata, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vaisatha the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the Jews' enemy, but they didn't lay their hand on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were slain in the citadel of Susa was brought before the king. The king said to Esther, the queen, The Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in the citadel of Susa, including the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? it shall be granted you. What is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do tomorrow also according to today's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. The king commanded this to be done. A decree was given out in Susa, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. The Jews who were in Susa gathered themselves together on the 14th day also of the month Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they didn't lay their hand on the plunder. The other Jews who were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together, defended their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they didn't lay their hand on the plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month Adar, And on the 14th day of that month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled together on the 13th and on the 14th day of the month. And on the 15th day of that month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the unwalled towns make the 14th day of the month, Adar, a day of gladness and feasting, a good day and a day of sending presents of food to one another. Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, both near and far, to enjoin them that they should keep the 14th and 15th days of the month Adar yearly as the days in which the Jews had rest from their enemies, and the month which was turned to them from sorrow to gladness and from mourning into a good day that they should make them days of feasting and gladness and of sending presents or food to one another and gifts to the needy. The Jews accepted the custom that they had begun as Mordecai had written to them because Haman the son of Hammedatha the Agagite the enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor that is the lot to consume them and to destroy them But when this became known to the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked plan, which he had planned against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they call these days Purim, from the word poor. Therefore because of all the words of this letter, and of that which they had seen concerning this matter, and that which had come to them, The Jews established and imposed on themselves and on their descendants and on all those who joined themselves to them, so that it should not fail that they would keep these two days, according to what was written, and according to its appointed time every year, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province and every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor their memory perish from their offspring. Then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abihiel, and Mordecai the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm the second letter of Purim. He sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim in their appointed times, as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had decreed and as they had imposed upon themselves and their descendants in the matter of fastings and their cry. The commandment of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Aren't all the acts of his power and of his might, and the full account of the greatness of Bordecai to which the king advanced him? written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia. For Mordecai the Jew was next to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and accepted by the multitude of his brothers, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his descendants. Cool. So this is how the feast of Purim came about. So Pur is the lot and therefore Purim is plural of that and therefore they celebrate the day when um Haman cast lots to see when they would kill all the Jews but now it turned out this would be the day that the Jews would kill all their enemies it's kind of morbid kind of like a positive spin on that movie the purge (laughs) they all want to kill you but you kill all of them instead Uh, but they don't lay hands on their plunder they don't do it for money it's really just um the ability to defend themselves. Uh, there is a difference though that it, between what happens in all around the country and what happens in just the capital city, Susa. So so first of all, on that one day of the lot, you know, all of them are allowed to defend themselves. And actually, <laughs> they get an unfair advantage because all the princes, all the governors, essentially all the military and all the officials, they helped the Jews <laughs> do in the defending but also the attacking i guess in a sense because they were fearful of mordecai and so what happens is that um, this happens all around the provinces and then the king gets the report you know oh, you know uh, they've killed all these people and especially in the capital city of susa 500 men are killed verse uh, 12 and they especially include the 10 sons of haman and we get all the names of them here uh, Parshandata, Dalphon, Aspata and Prata. <laughs> Prata sounds like Prata, sounds like Ruti Janai yeah uh, but um, yeah they killed them and it might be that because you know Haman he was prime minister and he had you know 10 sons it's quite a lot of sons remember he was boasting about his sons to his wife at that point of time uh, it also means that he might have had lots of support there still and maybe that's why they were uh there was this report specially sent to the king and that might also explain why Esther says please extend this ruling for one more day just for the capital so Esther said you know tomorrow let them do the same thing but just in the capital and especially for Haman's ten sons hang them on the same gallows that I guess the, their father was hanged so um, the king commanded this and remember this is some time after the fact after Haman is killed uh, this was like uh, almost a year, you know, 11 months, 10 months, something like that. And so what happens is maybe the fact that there are still this 10 sons, maybe there was still that attack on the Jews. Maybe there was still the opposition. And Esther wanted to just clear out every possibility of retaliation. And so for one more day, they were able to do this. And so they then killed 300 more men in Susa and didn't take the plunder. So altogether, 75,000 people uh, were killed all throughout the whole. Oh, yep. Okay. So they they're killed. They didn't take the plunder, and this was done on the 13th day, and then they rested on the 14th day. So 13th day was what the lot had cast on. So the next day they had the celebration, but in the capital, they had two days of this defense of this of this uh, retaliation of this attack, and then the day after that on the 15th day they had this celebration so there's a difference so uh it ends with mordecai writing out uh an instruction in every language sent out to every province at this mirrors um and haman sending out all this every language every province kind of letters initially then to kill all the jews but now he sends out these letters to celebrate celebrate this day of deliverance this day of purim and to remember this perpetually uh, since that day and so they said yep good idea so this will be a day of feasting of gladness sending presents food to one another and gifts to the needy almost like a christmas time uh, after this big battle And it retells the story of how they were almost killed by this enemy but then he cast this lot and it's that's that's why this auspicious day that's supposed to be have caused them death turned into life you know and and it turned on its own head and the person who went to kill them got killed but they who were almost killed got you know saved and now you know they're celebrating and God is not mentioned I if you notice that God is not mentioned throughout the entire book. We've read now 10 chapters of Esther. God is not mentioned once. But the fact that this happened so coincidentally through this lot and so providentially, everything is reversed. It's so completely out of their control that this could happen. This only could have happened through God. And this then is a consciousness that God is able to save his people especially especially from their enemies and god is able to use great evil to bring about great good you, know, you only have to think of how jesus you know jesus uh is you know the true the true mordecai and the true esther i think together you know esther who says if i die i die jesus says i will die you know it's not there's no ifs but also mordecai you know mordecai uh, initially about to be killed about to be hanged now is the one who is raised up and then his enemy is the one that's hanged and Jesus is the one who's raised up the one who's killed on the cross and not delivered from that but because he's killed he's then raised up to power and he's able to call us to rejoice in his power and therefore all you know all his enemies now fear him all fear his position and his power but all his people are able to rejoice in him okay cool That's the book of Esther. Hmm. Let's move on to Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, has found according to the flesh. But if Abraham, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not toward God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works... The reward is not counted as grace, but as something owed. But to him who doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, his trust is accounted for righteousness. Even as David also pronounces blessing on a man to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will by no means charge with sin. Is this blessing then pronounced on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it counted? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? not in circumcision but in uncircumcision he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while he was in uncircumcision that he might be the father of all those who believe though they might be in uncircumcision that righteousness might also be accounted to them he is the father of circumcision, to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father, Abraham, which he had in uncircumcision. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he should be heir of the world wasn't through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is made of no effect. For the law produces wrath, for there is no law, there is the, neither is there disobedience. For this cause it is of faith, that it may be according to grace to the end, that the promise may be sure to all the offspring, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. This is the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls the things that are not as though they were. Besides hope, Abraham in hope believed to the end that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which has been spoken, so will your offspring be. Without being weakened in faith, he didn't consider his own body already having been worn out, he being about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet looking to the promise of God, he didn't waver through unbelief, but grew strong through faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it also was credited to him for righteousness now it was not written that it was accounted to him alone for his sake alone but for our sake also to whom it will all, it will be accounted who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification Wow, okay, so very meaty, beefy chapter about justification. How we are justified, but also how we as children of Abraham are justified by faith. How do we make that connection? Abraham to us, his righteousness is our righteousness. He trusted in God, therefore we trust in God. And we see this phrase credited or accounted or counted as. That means um, there's two ways of thinking about this. You know, I think of credit and debit and accounting terms. Like you, if you move money into an account, you've credited that account. That kind of thing. It's kind of like God moved instead of money righteousness into Ab- Abraham's account. His account was empty. He owed money. <laughs> he was in debt. But God moved money that righteousness into his account, and that's one way of thinking about it. Uh, but the other way is also like it's as if he was righteous. That means he still isn't righteous, he still in, is in debt. But uh, it's ta- looking at someone who isn't a father as a father, someone who isn't good, who is, who is bad as good, that kind of thing. And we see those two aspects, those things play out in the picture of this guy named Abraham. And Abraham is, is here appealed because uh, in the last chapter he was still speaking to the Jews. You know, you want to talk to someone. You know, bring up a name that everyone will know. So in Malaysia, it would be, I don't know. Actually, in my generation, it would say Sidik, the Sidik brothers. But <laughs> no one at this at this age would know who they are. Miss Puan Sidik, you know, uh, he, he was a badminton player. So he was a hero once. Um, we went out for dinner, uh, and then we saw, oh wow, oh, the, the Sidik brothers are having roti canai down the road, and we were saying, oh wow, so cool. Um, that kind of thing. Today, you'll probably have to use like some K-pop star or something like that. Oh well, wow, uh, Han Ji Pyong, that kind of thing. But you know, Abraham was their Han Ji Pyong. Abraham was their Miss He was the guy whom everyone, in order to be a Jew, you had to be a child of Abraham. Put it that way, because you had to trace your lineage down to the Father who received all the blessings of God. He says, all your children will be my children, all your children will receive my blessings. Therefore if you're a child of Abraham, you're a child of God. And so he and so here Paul uses that to say that if you're a child of Abraham, you have to have that trust of Abraham. And trust here is contrasted with works. Verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about. That means if Abraham, you know, did a really good thing he lived a really good life, then God would almost owe him the, uh, this righteousness, this blessing as a payment for all the good that he did. He says, if that was true, then he could boast about it. Hey, look at me. I'm a good guy. God bless me. But actually, what does the scripture say? What does the Bible say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, it was accounted to him as righteousness. Meaning, God just said, okay. I'm going to give you like a million bucks. And Abraham said, yep, okay. <laughs> or God said, I'm going to give you a son. He said, yep, okay. And at this point, time, Abraham had no son, had no blessing, had no land, had no, none of these fullness of the promises. But he just went, okay, I believe you, God. And God that counted it to him as this righteousness. And again, righteousness, you can think of it as being in God's good book. Yep, Abraham, he's my guy because he trusted me when I gave him this promise. Now to him who works, the reward is not counted as grace, but something owed. So meaning if you work or if you kind of like look at this book, this Bible as something for you to do, then it's almost like uh, your boss giving you an assignment and you do it at the end of the day, you show the boss, okay, I've done all this work, you owe me this blessing. And therefore it's saying that, therefore, if that was the way they worked, God would owe something to you. And therefore what God gave you would not be by grace. You will not be out of love. You will not be out of God's own goodness towards someone who doesn't deserve that goodness. And he's saying that there's something better than that. And it's worth thinking about that for a moment. You know, lots of people think that this is how God works. This is how the universe works. We do good, we get good. We try our best, you know, God will do the rest. That kind of thing. And, you know, that's, um, that's something really good that feels about that. That, you know, if you do your best, you know, God... Well, he will bless you. He will see it and he will reward you. But there's something even better than that. That's verse five. To the person who doesn't work, maybe today you just slept. (laughs) You didn't do your job. But then you believe that God will pay me anyway. (laughs) Because so good, so generous. Because he justifies the ungodly. He gives money to the lazy. He, He considers good people, people who have done bad things, justifies the ungodly. Then his trust is credited to him. As righteousness. He's saying that Abraham did that? He says you can do that. It means that when you look at Abraham, you shouldn't look at Abraham as this good person I should aspire to be like. But this bad person who trusted in God. And therefore, no, hey, I can do that as well. I, I can trust in this same promises. And this same God will give me the same blessings that he gave to that great guy. Look at him. I want to be like him. You are. In fact, more because you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. A second character is brought in, David. And here, David's talking about all these blessings. Blessed, blessed, you know. Blessed is what? Blessed is, you think, having a kingdom, having a position, having money. No, it's having your sins forgiven, where God no longer charges you for your sin. It's having this bill that's being paid, realizing that you're in a position of debt, and then you're made well it's all covered again and this is a king that says this someone who realizes that his greatest blessing is not having lots of you know property and xboxes and being able to what no it's the fact that god doesn't consider me the evil person the evil things i've done doesn't consider all that but he forgives me and then he moves on okay all right we've been talking to you jews you are circumcised is it just for you or is it for non-jews as well because we say that, you know, he was credited to Abraham. Then remember how it was given to him. Abraham was the first person who was given this rule to be circumcised. But the thing is, this promise was given to him, and he asked this as a rhetorical question. Do you, know your, do you remember when the promise was given? Before or after he was circumcised. And he says, before, he said, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. You know he received this circumcision yes but it's a sign it's it's almost like a seal it's a proof that god will bless you and he says here the sign the seal of righteousness of faith which he had while he was still uncircumcised and my, you know again you know you could make this comparison with like baptism uh you know uh, are you forgiven by god does baptism save you know baptism is just a sign it's a picture that you have been saved that you are raised from the dead you know baptism is going down into the water to show that you died and coming off the water to show that you've been raised with christ and that's a sign you know that therefore spiritually speaking and universally speaking you know god has already done this for you but this sign reminds you and reminds the people around you that this is real this is going to happen and so for us baptism for abraham it's circumcision and therefore abraham is a father not just of those who've done this thing but for those who are believing god those who trust in god that though they might be uncircumcised that righteousness might still be counted to them and here he's talking about those who are not jewish those who don't have circumcision you know the most important thing to learn from Abraham is not all his good things, which actually we've seen before he has he didn't do a lot of good things, he do a lot of bad things. And not his circumcision. Uh, and therefore please don't rush and go get circumcised, which at this point of time they were trying to get the Gentiles to do. But that you trust in God the way that Abraham trusted in God. That's the one thing you should see in Abraham. Uh I just thought of something, but I forgot. It just went out of my brain. I wanted I wanted to say something here. What, what, what was it? I wanted I noticed something. Uh, there you go. Old age. Okay, let, let's carry on. Maybe it'll come back to me. Okay, so he is the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but those who walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham when he was in uncircumcision. And so, um, carries on. Da, da, da. Now he talks about the law. So the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he should be heir of the world wasn't through the law but it's through faith and here he's talking about those who say oh you know what but but then you know I spent all my life you know obeying the ten commandments I spent all my life learning these rules you know you know, I thought that was the way in which God would then consider me you know letting me to heaven blessing me you know considering me his child and he says no that's what not what the law does you know the law produces wrath for there is no law, there is neither disobedience. And this is probably really quite a mind blowing thing for I mean, for people who take the Bible seriously and and who want to carry it out and which is such a good thing. I mean, God is saying, you know, that that's such a wonderful thing to want to be a good person and want to obey God, and actually to think that, you know, yes, God should reward you if if you do right. But here Paul is almost being realistic, you know, the law just shows us how we don't obey the law. You know, if you understand just how serious God takes holiness and how the law reveals his character and how he wants us to obey him in that character of, you know, being pure and you know, not, not not rebelling against him, you know, you should realize that, hey, actually I have been sitting about it. the more you try, the more you should realize the more that we can't meet those standards. And therefore the law produces wrath. And when you don't have law, you know, you'd, it's not that you don't disobey, but you don't realize the, the, the things that you have not obeyed. But when there is that law, there's that rule, you realize, hey, actually, I haven't been obeying that law. I haven't been following God. And that then allows us to understand what grace is. Grace is. For this cause, it is of faith that it may be according to grace. To that end, well, wow, this is such a long sentence. To that end, that the promise may be sure to all the offspring, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. How What's going on here? I guess he's speaking to people who still think that because, um, and I don't think it's even that they obey the law, but they say that they have the law. The idea that, oh, I went to Sunday school all my life, and I've been going there, and I've been reading this book, and therefore God should let me into heaven. But all those guys, you know, they didn't follow it, therefore, you know, how can it be fair that God lets them in as well? But no, uh, Abraham is the father of us all because all of us trust God the way that Abraham trusted God. And for you, if you have the law, it should cause you to trust in God because you realize that you haven't been able to obey this law that you do know. And for them who don't have the law, realize that actually it's come to them so freely and all the more because we don't deserve this. I'm, I'm not a Jew, so I don't deserve this. But how gracious it is that God has extended this offer beyond you know the confines of those who've had this privilege before, beyond just the physical children of Abraham to me. And that for it just emphasizes God's grace. He gives his goodness to those who don't deserve it. So hence, father of all father of nations father of everyone father of those who believe and so father, father, father and then therefore and then he moves on to hope and hope here um, I went to like a funeral today uh, well online so I was watching this and the pastor made a really good point you know when we say hope it's not like when someone says I hope you know it's sunny tomorrow that means you know you're not really sure but here hope is something that is certain you know when it's like raining and said i hope that it will be sunny tomorrow it's almost like you have a guarantee i know it's going to happen because god told me that will happen by the way god doesn't give that kind of promises okay it might it might rain it might not be sunny tomorrow but he does give us that promise that he will raise us from the dead he does give us that promise that when you trust in him he'll forgive us our sins he gives us a promise that if we trust in jesus we are made full full rights of all the sons of god and we, we are his friends and that's the kind of hope that Abraham ha- had. Against all hope, he be- he had this hope. You know, he was as good as dead. He had hope that he would be. He would have life. And it's talking about him having a son. You know, Sarah's. So this kind of hope in the midst of everyone telling you you're crazy to hope in God. It's this kind of trust that all the circumstances, everything, the situation around you tells you that it's not going to work out. But God says, yes, it will, and therefore it will. And that's the kind of trust, the kind of hope, the kind of relationship that Abraham had. And Paul is trying to be saying that we should have as well in God. So he looked to the promise of God. He didn't waver through unbelief. Oh, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Okay, all right. So he keeps talking about belief. But the word here is actually better rendered trust. And there is this speaker, this pastor, Australian guy named Philip Jensen. He keeps saying, replace all the words belief with trust or rely and depend because from trust you get words like trustworthy, reliable and dependable and therefore it talks about God you're trusting in that relationship you're putting your weight of that trust in God whereas belief tends to, tends to give that picture, I believe you know, I believe in good God it puts, it puts it in us and it's a semantic thing but trust puts that weight, all that hope all that focus on God He is trustworthy he is dependable. He is uh, reliable. Therefore, we trust, we rely, and depend on him. Yeah, that's that's what that's what I forgot. But now I just remembered. Okay, and being fully assured, what he had promised, God was also able to perform, and hence again this idea of crediting to us. You know, the idea that God puts into our account something that we don't have. God considers us something that we are not. That means he puts his righteousness. He gives us that goodness. And now he talks about how that happens. It happens through the Lord Jesus Christ. But for our sake also, uh, to whom it will be accounted or credited, who trust in God, who raised Jesus, and he was delivered up for our trespasses. He was killed for our sins. And he raised for our justification. And so there's this idea of just as if, you know, credited. Remember, the credited is like putting something into our account that we don't have or treating us as something that we're not. So if we look at Jesus, it's as if, you know, Jesus receives all the account of our debt and all the goodness that's supposed to be him, he puts it into our account. So there's this exchange. So that's one thing that we see in Jesus. But also there's that just as if situation. You know, Jesus, when he dies on the cross, you know, it's as if I'm supposed to be on the cross. I'm the one that's supposed to die. But Jesus is there as if he was the one who sinned. All those things that you did, all the things that you thought and said, it's as if Jesus said those. And therefore God pours out all his anger and all his judgment on him. And all the good things that Jesus did, he obeyed his father, never sinned, always loved him and treasured him. And all the love that God has for his son, God puts it on us as if I did all those things that Jesus did. I didn't. I never could. I never do. But that's the way God sees you, sees me, if we trust in him who raised Jesus up from the dead, delivered him over for our trespasses, raised him for our justification. And that's Romans chapter 4. Yep. Okay, how are we doing for time? Uh, It is 7.37. It is late, and I have more emails. Oh, okay. Okay, all right. I'll answer them later. Let me end by praying. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus, for all that He's done on our behalf. We trust in His deliverance for our sins, that He died. He died. He took our place. He took all the horrible things that we did that we deserve judgment for. And therefore, when He was raised, And now he sits at your right hand and he was resurrected to this new life that is everlasting and indestructible. So we too have been raised in him. Thank you so much that you give us this salvation and this blessing and this relationship by your grace and by your goodness. And it's all for your glory. Thank you, Father. And we'll spend all our lives into eternity praising you for this wonderful gift of faith of grace of salvation through our lord jesus christ we pray this in his name amen amen bye-bye mm. shall we look at one john no i'm i'm lazy i'll look at it on my own okay all right um maybe tomorrow <laughs>